This morning we're going to be reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I father Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God, who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, it's great to see you all. Uh, my name's Rod, if you are new or visiting. I'm one of the pastors here, and it has been a long four months, but it's really exciting. I've got to greet some of you at the door, but wonderful to be back with you together, uh, to have fellowship in person. And we're continuing our series that we've been working through online in 1 Corinthians. So let me pray for us now that um, God might really help us as we look at this passage together, which has a lot of uh, strong things to teach us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom to gather today. We thank you for your word to us, which is living and active, which always speaks as your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds. And we ask this morning that you would do just that, uh, that you would help us to hear your voice clearly and that we might respond uh, to the challenge that you place before us. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, us versus them. The power of tribalism is immense. We can easily observe how powerful it is in sporting fans where it can feel like a force of nature. If you've never watched an English football match where people stand and sing for hours for their team and then go crazy in celebration when their team scores the winning goal, you might wonder whether I'm exaggerating. In some instances, the unbridled joy can last for weeks, especially if the victory wins the premiership for the first time in decades. It can bring an intense sense of belonging for supporters and us against them almost blind loyalty. But unfortunately, that same intense support for one's team can lead to division and even produce hatred and violence towards opposition supporters. Perhaps the worst example of this was at the Hazel Stadium disaster in Brussels in Belgium in 1985, where rioting Liverpool fans ended up charging across a barrier towards Juventus fans and the partly um, decaying um, stadium collapsed, crushing 39 Juventus fans. English clubs were banned from all European competitions for five years as a result of that tragedy. Now, that's where tribalism becomes deadly hooliganism. Now, I'm sure some of you might be shaking your heads at that point and thinking, but isn't it just a game? I mean, isn't all that emotion and tribalism out of proportion? I mean, are these really the actions of mature adults? But the divisive nature of backing your side or your leader can be felt in so many areas of life, in so many pursuits, and sometimes it can have far wider consequences than a football match. Think of politics, for example, when it comes to a big decision that affects a whole nation, like the Brexit debate in Britain. Some of you may recall uh, the mocking and name-calling that led to people acting like children and huge divisions cutting across the nation that were played out online and in person. Such an us versus them, leader versus leader, led to ugly scenes of intimidation and death threats that frankly will leave scars across Britain for years to come. But what if that kind of ugly, factional quarrelling were to happen in the church? What then? 
This is what the Apostle Paul raises again in his opening paragraph of 1 Corinthians 3. It's something he's raised in the first chapter. He comes back to it again. Notice what verses 1 to 4 state again. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Well, in verses 1 and 2 here, uh, Paul is recalling his ministry in Corinth five years earlier where he planted the church in a society dominated by idolatry and sexual immorality, and he refers to the spiritual immaturity of the new believers at that point, that they were mere infants in Christ at the time. They were immature, so he was not able to feed them with meaty teaching, but only with milk. And despite actually being there and planting the church for 18 months, he says that they never reached a point where he was able to move beyond basic teaching. It was quite an indictment. They were worldly or literally fleshly, and we might say understandably, given the environment that they had been part of in their city that they were converted out of. We know that they had come to faith. These are believers that he's writing to. He says so in chapter 1. But they were not living by the Spirit. They were not sufficiently responding to the conviction of the Spirit as they heard God's word taught to them as it was brought by the Holy Spirit. And sadly, at the end of verse 2, did you notice, Paul is saying that this is still the case five years later, that they're still indeed, you are still not ready. And the reason why they're still spiritually immature, he says, is because of their factions over leaders. He says it's evident because of their jealousy and their quarrelling in verse 4, which demonstrates that they still need to grow up spiritually. Now, all of this does raise the question, doesn't it, about how to think about spiritual leaders in the church, how to respond in a mature manner. The main question that I think this chapter answers for us is what is the role of human leaders in the growth of the church. See, in order to not get caught up in divisive quarrelling about this or that leader, we have to have the right understanding of their role in the life of the church and its growth, and by extension, understand how every believer should function within God's church. So what is the role of human leaders in the growth of God's church? Two answers this morning to that question. First answer is this. Servants assigned a task. That's what they are, servants assigned a task. Notice again what Paul says from verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. 
For we are fellow workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. So firstly, leaders are just servants assigned a task by God. Paul and Apollos, they were privileged. They were privileged to play a part in God's work of salvation. In verse 5, they are servants through whom the Corinthians believed. Both of them had engaged in evangelism. They had seen people come to faith in Jesus. Wonderful privilege. However, they simply played their part in starting the church in their God-given role, whether it was planting or watering. Now, Paul had the privilege of starting the church. He was the church planter. But after 18 months, he moved on from Corinth to Ephesus to continue that ministry. And shortly after that, Apollos comes to Corinth and he continues to do the work. He's the one watering the plants in Paul's farming analogy. But the growth of the church in Corinth was always due to God. It was never due to Paul or Apollos or anybody else. As human leaders, they had the same purpose. It wasn't a competition between Paul and Apollos. They're there to see God's church grow. And they were going to be rewarded for their efforts come eternity. But they were just co-workers, co-workers in God's service. So how do we apply that as we think about ourselves and WBC today? Well, we too need to realize that leaders have a role to play, yes. But God determines the growth. No human can change another person's heart. No human can bring growth in God's church because of their charisma or their skills or whatever it might be. No, that is all down to God and his work, the work of his spirit, changing lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we act lazily, you know, and then we fail to be uh, servants who are ready to be used as God's instruments. Not at all. But neither do we think that the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church depends on the leader or any individual person in the church's efforts. And frankly, that is a great freedom to understand that. That brings great assurance. It's not dependent on you or I. It's dependent on God's work through us. And so there's great assurance that he will do his work. We don't have to take on a false burden of believing that we're responsible for that which only Christ can do. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. I, the supremacy of Christ, will, the plan of Christ, build the work of Christ, my, the possession of Christ, church, that is the bride of Christ. We have the doctrine of the church and its growth right when we realize that it's all about God and his powerful work so that he gets the glory and no person does. So firstly then, as we look to grow in maturity at WBC, if you have a role in the life of our church, in teaching God's word in particular, at kids' church or at youth group or in a home group or in another ministry or even up here on a Sunday morning, then be assured that God will determine the fruit. He will apply his words to the hearts of others through the work of his spirit. The outcomes don't depend on your presentation. Now, that doesn't mean that you should not give you all, all as you plan and prepare and seek to faithfully handle God's word. Absolutely do that. 
But please pray that not just the pastors, but that every leader in our church will diligently serve and teach God's word with integrity, entrusting that our efforts will be used by God as he sees fit. And secondly, as we look to plant a church in the southern suburbs of Calderwood and Tullumbar in about 12 months from now, we are not trusting in the church planter or our strategy or whatever resources that we can bring to bear. Rather, we are trusting in our sovereign God to produce the growth that he sees fit, to draw people to himself through repentance and faith. Now, does that mean that we don't bother with a plan, that we don't allocate resources, that we don't select a church planter carefully? No, not at all. We must prayerfully do all of those things and much more besides. But we have to be convinced that only God can bring change in a person's life and grow his church, one person at a time, one family at a time. So please uh, be in prayer about our plans to reach those southern suburbs. Consider whether you might be part of the core team that we hope to start putting together in the new year. It's exciting to prayerfully partner with God, an all-powerful God, to reach a growing area of the Illawarra. And that brings me to a second answer to our question as to what the role of human leaders are in the growth of God's church. Secondly, they are builders whose work will be judged. They are builders whose work will be judged. Have a look again at what Paul states from verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. In the last phrase of verse 9, just before this, Paul shifted the imagery of the church, the congregation from paddock to building. He's moved from farming to construction. And he did this because he's wanting to talk now about laying the foundation that others would build on from verse 10. That one foundation, he says, is Jesus Christ, by which he means uh, the preaching of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. He's already made that really clear back in chapter 1. The foundation must be the person and work of Christ, in short, the gospel. And Paul says that he had done this, not because he's brilliant and he gets the gospel better than anyone else, but by the grace of God, he says, he has been made a wise builder by God. He has laid that foundation. But then did you notice, mysteriously, he refers to someone else who is now building at the end of verse 10. And this appears not to be a reference to Apollos, but presumably a recent leader who, whose wisdom is more worldly, who has come in. 
And so a warning follows for any subsequent teachers who would build on the gospel foundation. As the building rises, you see, from its foundations, it must be built using the same teaching about who Jesus is, what he's done for us in his death and resurrection. This must always be central. And so whoever wanted to add to the structure has to take great care, Paul is saying, great care to the quality of materials they use because God's going to judge their work. A day is coming, Paul says, when the fires of judgment will just sweep through, leaving only what is incombustible, only teaching that is centred on Christ and his atoning work on the cross will stand the test. And that's the point that Paul's making as he talks about gold and silver and costly stones, wood, hay and straw. The first three of those will survive fire. They'll be purified by it. The others will be burnt up and gone. He's saying that inferior material equals unfaithful teaching. And so anyone who perverts or sidelines the gospel will suffer loss. And that loss won't be their salvation because our salvation is not dependent on our work of ministry, but on the work of Jesus on our behalf. Rather, it's the loss of a warm commendation from Jesus, presumably. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's the loss of a life's work in ministry because it's been defective in sharing the truth. In contrast, those who are faithfully using the gold and silver and costly stones of the gospel will be rewarded by Christ's approval, which surely is what every true believer longs to hear. Now, we've got to say that often our generation is preoccupied with style rather than substance. This is the day of the cult of celebrity leaders. And many of you will have heard about the podcast The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which has been very popular over the last couple of months, which details the demise of a megachurch in Seattle. And there's an episode within that uh, where they talk about Pastor Mark Driscoll's desire to build a social media platform for his messages. He wanted them to be distributed nationally and internationally, uh, given his growing celebrity status. And that was achieved in a few short years. But the result of that, along with them going to multi-site campuses and just beaming videos on big screens of him across many churches, was that more and more the church became a group of consumers coming to the celebrity pastor. They had very little opportunity to interact with him. They had created a culture where people could easily say, I follow Mark Driscoll, but they weren't necessarily growing as disciples of Jesus. And unfortunately, that fame and power led to the downfall of the pastor and then the megachurch with it because it had become more of a business than a gathering of God's people. But the fallout of something like that, the hurt that it brings in the demise of a church, is substantial. It's been seven years since that happened, and there's still great fallout in the city of Seattle as a result. The gospel has been maligned. Now, it's just one of many sad stories, of course, down through the years. But the gravity of such events 
and the lessons that must be heeded are even more striking when you consider Paul's words in verses 16 and 17. Notice what he writes there. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Here is God speaking about the preciousness of the church to him. Paul develops his building metaphor further, likening the church to God's temple in Jerusalem, the place where he dwelled with his people. Notice the church is not a building, but the people as his spirit indwells individuals and then collectively indwells the people of God as they gather. But we also see here God's serious commitment, don't we, to judge those that tear down the church. Given the context of these first three chapters, the destruction being spoken about, being assumed here, is the disunity that is in the church in Corinth. Paul is returning to the matter of their factionalism, which he confirms in verse 21 that follows. What he's saying is that the personality cult focused on individual leaders must end. It must end or it will cause great damage. There's a dire warning here to those who willfully destroy God's church through their divisive actions. And this highlights in contrast, as I mentioned before, how much the church means to God. And why, therefore, a worldly approach to leading and teaching are simply immature and, worse still, can destroy the bride of Christ. And sadly, we will probably all know examples of churches that have imploded. You may well have been part of one in the past. And this is why Paul concludes the chapter by returning to his contrast between worldly wisdom and the supposed foolishness of just preaching the gospel. In quoting Job 5 and Psalm 94, in those final verses, he again highlights God's judgment on those who claim to be wise in the world's eyes. Putting sinful human leaders on pedestals will only lead to wrongful pride and division. It's a recipe for disaster. But rather, he says, we should grasp in verse 22 and 23 that we belong to Christ and Christ is of God. The phrase, you are of Christ, talks about our belonging to him, that we are his possession because we're his bride, the church. We're united because of our faith in him. It's faith in him that brings us together. As Mark Dever, the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist, has stated, when a person becomes a Christian, he or she doesn't just join a local church because it's a good habit for growing in spiritual maturity. The Christian joins a local church because it's the expression of what Christ has made that person a member of the body of Christ. Well, I want to encourage you this morning to have that kind of conviction about belonging and serving here at WBC. 
not because I'm wanting you to, but born out of your identity in Jesus, that you would love Christ's church and long to gather with his people and to do so with a deep sense of God having placed you here as part of a family of believers, even if only for this season of your life. And that the result might be that you would commit yourself to serve while you're planted here so that you might faithfully contribute to the growth of God's church as he is pleased to work through us. We all have a role to play. This isn't just a chapter about pastors. This is a chapter about anybody that is holding out God's word, that is teaching others, that is helping people move forward, maturity, in growing in their following of Jesus. We all have a role to play. All leaders, all members are simply servants who have been assigned tasks. We've been commissioned. We've been given the great commission of Matthew 28. Our purpose in this world is to make disciples of all people. And the question is whether we've committed ourselves to doing that because the local church is the vehicle that God has chosen to do that great work through. All leaders are simply servants, builders whose work will be judged. And so I don't want to do this in a half-baked way. I'll be judged if I do, and so will you. I want to be wholehearted. I want to give my life to this great privilege, this great responsibility that we've been entrusted with so that we might hear those words from Jesus on that great final day, well done good and faithful servant. Will you pray with it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us through the Apostle Paul. Help us to see the great cause of the gospel going to all nations through your church. Help us to value to see the great worth of your people gathered, to value it as highly as you do, that we might give ourselves a sense of belonging and service and commitment that is shaped not because we feel a false sense of duty that somebody else places on us, because we love your people, because we've been brought into your family through faith in your Son. Help us to understand all that you seek to do in this world through your people and so give ourselves wholeheartedly to it. We ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.